people were bringing the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, you honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked round and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with human beings, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, it's been a long time since I've done this, and I know you've all been desperately waiting for it, so I have another podcast recommendation. About a year or so ago, I recommended a podcast that I'm convinced uh, called No Such Thing as a Fish, that I'm convinced one person definitely has started listening to since, and someone else, I think, described it to me as utter garbage. So, um, have a look for this one. This is one called Why Would You Tell Me That? And it's with these two Irish guys, uh, and each week, one of them brings on an expert to talk about a really fascinating subject they think the other person will be interested in. And in the first half of the podcast, they tee it all up by sharing facts and stories on a similar theme. And if you've been around me when I've learned, talked about bats, this is where it comes from. If not, come and ask me about bats afterwards, and they're amazing. Anyway, one episode, they were talking about businesses and business mistakes and finances and stuff, and they talked about a company called Excite. Uh, oh, I don't want to press too far ahead. Excite. So anybody remember Excite? Okay, so yeah, in 1999, they were the second biggest internet search engine. Yahoo was the top, and then underneath them was Excite. So they were, they were doing really, really well. And one day they were contacted by two blokes called Larry and Sergey, who offered to sell Excite, Excite some search engine software that they'd been developing that was better than theirs. They said, we've tested it, it's better than yours. They proved it was better than theirs. So Excite went, okay, how much do you want? They said, well, a million dollars. Excite laughed them out of the room. Bit of bantering, bit of negotiating, bit of bantering, bartering. Uh, 
a bit of negotiating back and forth. They managed to hammer them down to $750,000, and Larry and Sergey even offered to come and work for Excite to make it all work. But Excite just weren't convinced it was good enough. It wasn't worth the investment, so they walked away from the deal. And Larry and Sergey went off, started their own company called Google. Um, whatever happened to them. So the guys at Excite, they walked away from an incredible offer that would have changed their lives completely. And in our passage today, you may have spotted it, we meet somebody who walks away from an even better offer, which is a shock. And it's a big shock because when you read this passage, this guy looks so impressive. He comes to Jesus with an impressive attitude, an impressive history, and he asks an impressive question. It looks so good. And yet this guy walks away sad. I can't think of another example in the Gospels of someone who comes to Jesus earnestly and leaves sad. Except for this man. He isn't welcomed into the kingdom that Jesus came to begin. And so when we read this, this passage must make us question, what can stop somebody from entering God's kingdom? What can stop someone getting into God's kingdom? We need an answer to that question as we read this because what if that's stopping us? What might keep us out? Or what about the people we love and know? What might stop people we know and love from entering God's kingdom? Well, that's what Jesus wants to teach us here. He wants to lovingly warn anybody who thinks they might be inside the kingdom. And he wants to give hope to anyone who feels like they could never get in. And Jesus does that through three different people that he interacts with in these verses. And the first people we see is the children and Jesus. The children and Jesus. So our passage today starts with a statement that would have surprised Mark's original readers. Verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. Now, that's not very shocking to us. Like, we live in a culture where children are always brought to things. We welcome them. Celebrities are always having selfies with people's children and politicians picking up babies and things like that. Children are an important part of our culture. But in Jesus' day, childhood was mainly seen as an unavoidable but annoying wait until you became an adult and could become useful. Children were only really important if they were linked to important men. Yes, sons were a blessing, but only because they carried on the family name. And until they were old enough to work in the family business, they were just an inconvenient mouth to feed. But not to Jesus. Clearly not to Jesus, so much so that people were bringing children to him to put his hands on them, which is a sign of blessing them, a kind of a priestly blessing to them. But unlike a lot of the people Jesus touches in Mark's gospel, these children don't even need to be healed. Like there's no indication they're being brought because they're sick, they're just coming because it's a good thing to bring our children to Jesus. These people know that bringing children to Jesus is the best thing they can do, which is a great example for all of us. Let's not wait for an emergency before we bring our children to Jesus. And let's definitely not be like the disciples. Have you seen what they're doing? They're rebuking the people who are bringing the children to Jesus. They're telling them off. Despite, if you just look back in your Bible, a, a page or a swipe or two, Despite in chapter 9, they hear Jesus say, while holding a little child, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Oh, these genius disciples take that to mean that they should stop children from coming to Jesus. They didn't stop the Pharisees back in verse 2. Notice that with their trick question. But the ones that Jesus has specifically said to let come to him, 
they're the ones they tell off. A bit laughable, really, isn't it? They say it doesn't make Jesus laugh. What does it say he is in verse 14? It makes him indignant. As Jesus was indignant. Now that word indignant uh, means that it makes him so angry he can't help but show it. Jesus is so angry at these disciples pushing the children away that he can't help but show it. And it's easy when we read the, the Bible to not read it with maybe some of the drama they may have wanted in it. I imagine this verse being, oh, let the little children come to me. He's annoyed he can't help but display this. And don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then Jesus takes these children, the idea being maybe littler children than even we're thinking of in our brains, walking to them, little babies, toddlers, and he uses them as a picture lesson for his disciples. Verse 15, truly, I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus carries on the teaching he's been teaching since chapter 9 and tells them that if anyone doesn't receive the kingdom of God the way a child receives people, they won't be in it. These children have been used as a picture of what saving faith looks like. But that begs the question, what is it about the children that Jesus is wanting to use as a picture? Uh, we've got all these ideas of what children are like in our culture. They're innocent, they're kind, they're funny, they're nice, whatever. What, is that what Jesus is talking about? Well, for this culture at this time, what Jesus is using as a picture of a disciple is these children's helplessness. Their helplessness. He's holding little children, babies and toddlers who can do almost nothing for themselves. And as he holds him, he says, this, this is you need what you need to be like in order to get into my kingdom. Helpless, not great like you have been and you are going to be arguing about. Helpless. Jesus says the kingdom of God is freely available to anyone who knows how helpless they are to get into it by themselves. To enter the kingdom of God like a child is to enter it knowing you have no way of getting in on your own. Children are small. They're powerless when they're this little. They're unimpressive. And in Jesus' day, they had no rights, and they've got nothing to barter with or pay with. Whatever children get, they get by grace and love, not because they've deserved it or earned it. Jesus says children are models of disciples because they come empty-handed. And only empty hands can be filled. And so Jesus uses these empty children to teach us how empty we all need to realize we are if we want to enter God's kingdom. You don't become a Christian by telling God how good you are or how good you're going to do or how much you're changing. If you're not a Christian here this morning or you think you're a Christian because of how good you've behaved or something you have done, any right or ritual you've been through, Jesus wants you to think again. That isn't how the kingdom of God works. You cannot earn your way in, no matter how hard you try. Which is what the next person Jesus meets teaches us. And so secondly, we'll see the rich man and Jesus. There you go. So if we add together what we know about this rich guy from Matthew and Luke as well as Mark... This guy is amazing. You heard John earlier refer to him as the rich young ruler. That comes from piecing together pieces from the other Gospels. So this guy's rich. 
He's well-behaved. He's polite. He's got a good job. He's a leader. He knows his Bible inside out. This guy's great, right? We'd want him as part of our church. And he sprints up to Jesus, desperate to know the answer to this question. He kneels before him and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow. What a question. He's the first person in Mark's gospel to ask this sort of question. This is a big deal. This guy just looks better and better and better. However, Jesus doesn't answer him, does he? Instead, he probes into the man's heart by asking him the question back, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Now, that might seem like a strange question. What's Jesus doing here with this little good excursion? But in those days, people didn't let themselves be called good. Even priests and rabbis, the kind of goodest people in society, they never let themselves be called good because only God is good. And so if you're claiming you're good, well, that's blasphemy. And in that culture, you'd be killed for that. So one of the reasons Jesus asked this question in verse 18 is to avoid being accused of blasphemy. He asked this question to avoid the accusation of blasphemy. If he doesn't challenge this, then the teachers of the law could accuse him straight away and have him killed, stoned to death. And Jesus knows it isn't his time to die yet. Verse 13 tells us he's on his way. Not verse 13, sorry, verse 17. He's on his way to Jerusalem, where it is his time to die. But before this guy can give an answer to that question, Jesus gives him a quick rundown of the human-focused Ten Commandments. It's what theologians call the moral law. And he throws in a law about not defrauding as well, too. And this man replies, verse 20, Teacher, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Oh, this guy gets better, doesn't he? I don't think he's bragging here. I don't think he's showing off. He genuinely believes this. He's sincere when he says this. Rabbis at this time taught that it was possible to keep the law, they would say, from A to Z. And this man is genuinely convinced that he's kept the law fully. And we can be confident he's not being hypocritical. He's not claiming he's perfect when he knows he isn't because of Jesus' reaction. Like, Jesus doesn't tolerate hypocrites. And what's his reaction to this guy? Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He sees the depths of this guy's heart and he loves him, loves him with the love only God can love. And there is no one else in this gospel where Mark tells us Jesus loved them, just this guy. And because he loves him, he wants to put his finger on the real barrier to this man gaining eternal life. Verse 21, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Only when he sells all that he has and becomes like a helpless little child will he possess everything he really needs. Sometimes loving someone means addressing where they're going wrong. And Jesus shows this by saying that all of this man's obedience to the Ten Commandments is no substitute for obeying Jesus. All of his obedience to the Ten Commandments, as good as that might be, is no substitute for obeying, knowing, and following Jesus. Unless keeping the Ten Commandments is as a result of obeying Jesus, it's pointless. But sadly, this guy thinks he could do enough himself. In fact, he revealed that in his question at the start, when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you do to get an inheritance? Nothing. 
is wait for someone to die. You've just got to wait for the owner of the estate to die before you get it. You don't earn an inheritance. It's yours by birth. But this man reveals his heart that he thought he could earn the forgiveness from God that would lead to eternal life. And with one swift diagnosis, Jesus puts his finger on the problem and he reveals the one thing that this guy loves more than him is money. Jesus' real question here is what we thought about at the end of the sermon last week. Are we willing to do whatever Jesus calls us to in order to be his disciple? Are we willing to do whatever Jesus commands us to do in order to follow him? If Jesus tells us to, are we willing to give up comfort, finances, family ties, nice houses, high-flying jobs in order to obey him? Are we willing to give up friendships, relationships, dreams for the future in order to obey Jesus? The shock of this passage, and in fact a lot of chapter 9, is that Jesus really means what he says. It is better if our right hand causes us to sin for us to cut it off. It is better to get into heaven without our right hand than to go to hell with it. It is better to go without whatever it is you might put your trust in more than Jesus than to disobey him. It is better to go without everything in order to obey Jesus. You see, Jesus loves this man enough to give up his life for him. But this man loves his wealth far more than he loves Jesus. And his wealth was worth more to him than Jesus. Do you notice in Jesus' offer? He offers himself as a substitute for everything this man has. And for this man, Jesus isn't enough. And he walks away. Sad. So looking around, Jesus sees what's happened. He sees his disciples. And he wants to use this man as another picture lesson. Verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this blows their mind, verse 24. They don't know what's going on here. They've all grown up, sorry, always being taught that wealth meant blessing from God. So when Jesus says this, it just baffles them. They don't remember that all through his life, Jesus has hung out with the poor and the needy and is the poorest person they knew. And he obeyed the Old Testament's commands to care for the poor and the widows and the orphans and the fatherless. And so to make his point even stronger, Jesus pushes a little bit harder in verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may have heard this preached on before, and there have been loads of different ways that people have tried to explain this verse in the past. Like Maybe the needle being a gate into the city of Jerusalem that camels had to kneel down before and take backpacks off. There is no evidence for that. Camels weren't even really domesticated in this area until after the first century. So probably not that. There is no archaeological evidence for that being the case at all. Again, the truth is, Jesus means exactly what he says here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, that's a big needle, than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Full stop. If you've seen old series of Taskmaster, this may remind you of a task. But we've just seen a perfect illustration of this point that Jesus has made, haven't we? The tiny, empty children and the rich man. The children are welcomed into the kingdom and the rich man walks away. So what's Jesus saying here? Is he saying that for all of us in this room, the ideal we should all be aiming for is poverty? 
No, that's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is teaching that the feeling of helplessness that results from poverty is a blessing. We learned in the parable of the sower back in chapter 4 that money and wealth easily are big stumbling blocks to people believing and trusting the gospel. They create self-confidence and pride that stop us trusting in Jesus because they take away our feelings of helplessness, our awareness of our helplessness. And nothing removes those barriers to feeling helpless and having nothing. Empty hands leave space for Jesus to fill. Empty people are welcomed into the kingdom. But those who refuse to empty themselves for the sake of following Jesus, they're really sadly allowed to walk away. So Jesus isn't saying here that we should all sell everything we have and live on the streets. Although if that is what obedience to Jesus looks like for you, if that is your call to go and live in another part of the world, on the streets, ministering to people there, then you should do it. Is he saying here that everybody at Avenue should sell up their houses and move to Ayers Monsell where it's slightly poorer? It might shock you for me to say, no. That isn't what Jesus is teaching all of us here. Although again, perhaps maybe yes for some of us here. Instead, what Jesus is telling us here is to get rid of anything that stops us depending on him and obeying him. Jesus is telling us to get rid of absolutely Anything, no matter what it is, that will stop us depending on him for all we need and obeying him no matter what. But as we saw and have seen recently, this rich man is, reminds us that this is going to hurt. Following Jesus may well cost us things that are really important to us. Obeying Jesus will lead a lot of us to lose money, comfort, status. Job advancement. You may even be asked to give up your life to follow Jesus. But as we saw last week, it is worth it. It is worth giving up everything to follow Jesus. He asked us, didn't he, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your eternal soul? Jesus lets us do that maths. Following Jesus is going to mean giving things up. And Jesus knows that wealth and money in particular are challenges to following him wholeheartedly. And that's everyone in this room. That's a challenge we all face. By any way you measure wealth throughout history, we are some of the richest people that have ever lived, no matter how rich you are compared to the person you're sat next to. This is the thing we need to think about seriously. Following Jesus is going to be costly. We're going to feel that cost, all of us whether that is with our money or just with our time or our marriages or our singleness or our sex drive or our work or our schoolwork or our drinking or our families or whatever, following Jesus involves a cost. And that's going to be hard. So it's worth thinking and being realistic. What are the things in our life that at the moment stand in the way of us wholeheartedly trusting and obeying Jesus? What might Jesus be calling us to get rid of for the sake of him? That's a big, vague question. Let's change it a little bit more specifically. What is the thing that if I came up to you after the service and said, you need to give that up, you'd be raging out and walk away sad? It's going to be hard. But it's not impossible. It is not impossible. 
That's what Jesus tells his disciples in verse 27, isn't it? They wonder, who on earth can be saved, verse 26? And Jesus agrees that, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But God can make the impossible possible. And if God calls us to do something, he will give us the ability to do it when we obey him. A good example of that, again, thinking back in Mark's gospel, is chapter 3. This guy with a withered hand, his hand is withered and mangled, and Jesus tells him to do the one thing he can't do. Stretch out your hand. And as he obeys Jesus, Jesus gives him the power to do it, and his hand is healed. Because what Jesus commands us to do, he helps us to do. It takes faith, it takes risk and obedience, but it's worth it. And that is what Jesus moves us on to think about thirdly with his disciples. So we'll see thirdly, the disciples and Jesus. Hearing all this, Peter, classic Peter, speaks up. And in my head, this is in like a little comedy show in the background. We've left everything to follow you. And I love Peter. I love Peter so much. I imagine the other disciples love Peter too, because he said what they were all thinking, but were too scared to ask because they didn't want to look stupid. Brilliant. Always good to have a friend like that. But this is a valid question. It is a valid question. If it is impossible to do enough to get into and stay in the kingdom ourselves, well, what benefit have our sacrifices got at all? Those sacrifices are still genuine and costly, so does it not count for anything? Does the fact that these guys have left all things to follow Jesus count for anything? Or is it just pointless? And Jesus responds by telling them that any sacrifice for him is going to be rewarded a hundred times as much in this life and with eternal life in the world to come. So we can't follow Jesus with full hands, but Jesus says we'll receive a hundred times over anything we give up for him. Yes, verse 30, there are going to be some persecutions too. The life of a disciple isn't utopia, and it isn't an insurance policy against hardship. But, he says, it's more than worth it. And whatever you lose, you don't really lose. So, he says, we shouldn't really think about following Jesus in terms of how much it's going to cost us. Thinking about how much it costs us to follow Jesus is the wrong way to think about following Jesus. No, Jesus says that the sacrifices we make to follow him are nothing compared to what we're going to receive through blessing by obeying him. Now and in the future. Well, isn't verse 29 just incredible? Truly, I tell you, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. I don't really believe that very often. Far too often, I don't really believe that. I've been really struck by that this week. Maybe you're like me. I don't think I'm the only person here. I know I don't believe it wholeheartedly because often when I've got the option of the easy route or the harder route of obeying Jesus, I take the easy route. I choose comfort and pleasure over self-control. I choose looking after me more than dying to myself to serve others. I choose my wants rather than gospel needs. I choose self-reliance and prayerlessness instead of admitting my helplessness by praying about things that I can't do. Why? Because too often I believe the lie that sacrifice for the sake of obeying Jesus isn't worth it. That's what I believe. That's what we all believe from time to time. That's what sin is, isn't it? That's why the devil tempted Eve in the garden. 
But Jesus reminds us of the truth that we all need to remember to keep doing what he calls us to do, that nobody who gives up anything for him will ever lose out, ever, even when it feels like it. Any sacrifice isn't really a loss in the long term. That's how the whole sacrifice system was set up. In the Old Testament, they didn't focus on the lamb they were killing. They were focusing on the forgiveness they gained. The whole point of sacrifice in the Bible is not thinking about what you lose, but what you gain as a result. And that's what Jesus reminds us of here. Monsal team, I know there's very few of you in here, but it's still relevant for everybody. I want to speak to you specifically here because the devil is going to want to trick us that the sacrifices we're making and that we're going to be called to make to grow a church in Ayers Monsal, they're not going to be worth it. He's going to try and lie to us and tell us that giving up the perks of a bigger established church like Avenue, losing some of the intimacy of friendships that we have, giving up living in nicer areas, in nicer houses with better schools, the devil's going to want to make us believe that the sacrifice we're making isn't worth it and that we're actually missing out. He's going to want to make us be half-hearted or even walk away. But what does Jesus say? No one who's given up anything for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and heaven too. Is it worth giving stuff up for Jesus? Jesus says yes, a hundred percent yes. The Apostle Paul says the same too later on in the New Testament in Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Not even worth comparing. Oh, heaven's going to be great, isn't it? But not just that, we've also got every person who's ever died trusting in Jesus telling us exactly the same thing. Hebrews 12 tells us that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are watching us in our race, people who've died before us while trusting in God. Tim Keller is one of them right now, and every single one of them screaming to us as we run this race, as we give things up for Jesus, it's worth it, keep running, keep going, get rid of that, it's going to slow you down, run faster. It's worth it. And so when we forget that, and when we struggle to believe it, we need each other. We need to go back to God's word. And wonderfully, we've got examples of what to pray then. The Father's Prayer from back in chapter 9. Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Is it worth it? Is it worth giving up everything to follow Jesus? Yes. So whatever is stopping you, it's worth getting rid of. Because Jesus gave up everything in order to win us. He gave up heaven. Perfect intimacy within the Godhead. He gave up status. Coming to earth as a single cell in a poor teenager's womb. He gave up all honor and glory to become helpless and a useless infant. He gave up the praise of angels and cherubim and seraphim to be ignored, rejected, abused, spat on, and beaten. He gave up a glorious throne of eternal joy in heaven, robed in majesty and splendor for a cruel wooden cross clothed with nothing at all. He gave up immortality and came to die. Why? Hebrews 12 again. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And what is part of that joy set before him? Us. He considered nothing to go through all that to win us for himself, to win you for himself. That's what helped him endure 
all of that for us. Hallelujah, what a saviour. So reflecting on all this, an old dead guy called C.T. Studd said it like this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If what I've just said about Jesus is true, then anything Jesus calls you to give up for in order to follow him, it's a no-brainer. Jesus will never ask us to sacrifice more for him than he sacrificed for us. He will never ask us to sacrifice more to follow him than he sacrificed in order to win us for himself. So to go back to this man's question, what must we do to inherit eternal life? Come to Jesus, helpless. Ask to be let into the kingdom, not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it and we need him to give it to us. And Jesus says he will welcome you in with open arms. As we empty our hands of everything we filled them with to try and make ourselves good enough, as we get rid of everything that's more valuable than Jesus, only then will we receive what he alone can give. To quote an old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked look to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That's what these children model. That's what this rich man didn't get, and he goes away sad. He demonstrates that a rich man without God is just a poor man with money. So whatever it costs us to follow him wholeheartedly, it's worth getting up, getting rid of. The way you get into the kingdom is the way you live in the kingdom. It doesn't change. You don't progress from this. As Tim Keller taught us, the gospel stays the gospel no matter what, whether you're a Christian or not. You don't move beyond this feeling of helplessness once you're in. But we need reminding of this again and again, don't we? Which is why God has given us his word, has given us each other, and has given us different rhythms of church life to help remind us of everything that Jesus gave up for us and of how worth it is to keep going for him. And one of those reminders is the Lord's Supper that we're going to turn to now. The Lord's Supper is just another picture that Jesus left for us and that he told us to do regularly. And there are loads of reasons why we're told to do it in Scripture. But one of those reasons is to remember what Jesus gave up for us. To remind us of his body broken and his blood shed on the cross through the pictures of the bread and the wine, gluten-free bread for us and just some Ribena, I think. But those are beautiful pictures and images of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And they're a good opportunity for all of us, before we come to this, to take some time to search our hearts and to think, is there anything that God is calling us to give up in order to follow him and obey him? Maybe for the first time, maybe just more wholeheartedly. So in a moment, we're going to have a time of quiet where we can pray, all of us, and we can come before God, ask him to help us to let go of what he's calling us to let go of. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'm sure someone sat near you would love to pray with you as well. It's a time to repent of things we need to repent of. It's a time to forgive people we need to forgive, to get help, to give up what we need to give up, and to ask God's help to live lives with empty hands. Then we'll sing. And then we'll do the Lord's Supper. We'll take part in that. But if you're not a Christian here today, this picture's not for you right now to take part in. But it is a picture for you to see. If you can't say that Jesus is your saviour, that he's forgiven your sins, and that he's your Lord, 
the one you want to obey no matter what, then this meal isn't for you yet to take part of. But it is an open invitation for you to make that difference today, to ask Jesus to help you to see your helplessness and your neediness and a chance to ask him to help you live for him today, perhaps for the first time, to receive the eternal life only he can give. So let's spend a few minutes now in the quiet. Maybe the band can come up as we start to think about this. Then I'll pray, and then we'll sing a song. Let's pray in our heads quietly now, and then I'll close in prayer in a moment. Father God, we thank you for the truths we've thought about this morning. We thank you for your clarity through your Son, teaching us what we need to hear, even if we don't like hearing it sometimes. Father, if there are sins we need to repent of this morning, I pray that you'd help us to run away from them. If there are things we need to give up, I pray you'd give us all uh, the motivation and the spur to choose to give those up today. Thank you for the help you promised to give when we seek to obey you. Father, if there's people here who don't yet know you and who want to come to know you and to get this eternal life, Lord, would you give them the confidence and the boldness to speak to whoever they need to speak to today about that? Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the cross he so determinedly went to, to win the eternal life for us that we don't deserve and can never earn for ourselves. I pray that you'd help us to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received as a result, never thinking we're more um, helped than, uh, helpful than we really are. Help us to see our neediness and our helplessness. But thank you that when we come to you in that way, you don't turn anybody away. It comes to you that attitude. Amen.